0: I'm Judy Palfrey, the Director of the Global Pediatrics Program in the Department of Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. And very pleased to be here with you to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. Zolfi Buta, who has come to join us to talk about uh, the causes of child mortality around the world. Dr. Buddha is a true global citizen. We're very pleased to have Dr. Buddha as our guest. He is currently in the dual role of the Harding Professor of Global Child Health and Policy at the SickKids Hospital in Toronto, the University of Toronto, as well as the founding director of the Center for Child Health and Women's Health at the Aga Khan University in Pakistan. Dr. Buddha is an expert in the Millennial Development Goals, Uh, and he will be sharing with us uh, the experience that we're having around the world in combating child mortality. A major uh, contribution that Dr. Uh, Buddha has made is in health policy development, but at the same time as working on very high-level systems issues, he is a local practitioner who has had many impacts on child health through his work on diarrhea, on nutrition, and on safe birth. So we're very excited to have you here, Dr. Buddha. Uh, and we're going to ask you a few questions about your work.
1: With pleasure. Thank you for that generous and kind introduction, Judy.
0: So let's just uh, get started. You've been involved in the international global uh, child health survival for many, many years. Tell us about the creation of the Millennial Development Goals.
1: So the Millennium Development Goals were principally created because of the feeling across the world, and particularly at the level of the United Nations, that we needed to do something for global health and development, which was holistic, ambitious, visionary, and built on uh, the initiatives that were taken by UNICEF and the United Nations around holding the first Global Child Health Forum. Uh, So the goals were coined in a way to raise the threshold and the benchmarks for what countries might want to achieve over time in addressing issues of maternal health, of reducing poverty, of improving environment, and of also addressing the whole issue around child survival. So at the time when these goals were coined and the countries around the world agreed to sign them, the year 2000, although there were several goals— uh, some really stood out, and the Millennium Goal 4 and the Millennium Goal 5, which respectively relate to the survival of children under five and of mothers and women across the world, are the two Millennium Goals that have been the major focus of practitioners involved in maternal and child health. So we set ourselves a target in the year 2000 to say, by the year 2015, most of the signatories would aim towards a reduction in child mortality by two-thirds from the benchmark that was set at the year 1990, and for maternal deaths to reduce these by three-quarter.
0: How are we doing with those goals?
1: So it's a glass half full. So many countries have actually made tremendous progress. So the reality is that the Millennium Goals did set targets in front of countries that many governments and policymakers adopted very readily and focused attention on uh, addressing the issue of maternal and child health and survival quite squarely. So I'm very pleased to say that many countries are on target. And they include countries that you would not have thought of 20 years ago as being anywhere close to meeting these lofty targets of reducing mortality by so much. And they include countries in Africa, they include countries in Asia. They include countries which had been widely regarded as basket cases at one stage. But sadly, despite that global progress and those specific instances of success, we still have many countries that are going to be way off target for both maternal survival and child survival. And that's one of the reasons why 2015 is also an opportunity for us to take stock in terms of what needs to be done beyond 2015 when the world will move from the millennium goals to more sustainable development goals.
0: Tell us a little bit about which are the countries and which are the diseases where there's been great progress.
1: So let's step back for a moment and look at what kills children worldwide. So it's been known for a long time, although the figures and proportions have varied, that a large proportion of under five child deaths occur in the newborn period. So we have known for almost a decade that upwards of 40% of all under five child deaths occur in the newborn period, the vast majority within the first few days after birth. In fact, 75% of all newborn babies who die, die within the first few days of life. So that's one big part of child mortality. But we also recognized around the time when the Millennium Goals were coined that two big disorders diarrhea and pneumonia account for almost half of all post-newborn child deaths. And they were the low-hanging fruits because many of the treatment and preventive strategies for childhood diarrhea and pneumonia have been known for a long time. So these three categories of causes of child deaths in themselves account for almost 75% or thereabouts of all causes of deaths in children. So countries that have made progress, rapid progress have largely done so by addressing the post-neonatal child mortality. So many countries have reduced diarrhea burden and mortality significantly, pneumonia mortality as well, although to a lesser extent than diarrhea. To give you an example, Bangladesh, which was the cradle for much of the research around childhood diarrhea, where oral rehydration was born, where you have international centers for diarrheal diseases research, now has very little child deaths due to diarrhea to me that's a phenomenal success story of what focused attention and concerted action can do both at a global level with translation into local policy but at the same time there are still mountains to climb because there are still lots of children dying unnecessarily from disorders such as childhood pneumonia and obviously many of the determinants of child mortality Factors that lead to child deaths but are not obvious to either policymakers or practitioners still need to be tackled.
0: So let's turn now to our colleagues around the world for a question. When you leave your answer, if you could please first state the city and country of your hospital location. The question is this, do you have a success story related to reducing child mortality from diarrhea? pneumonia, or perinatal deaths. We'd love to share these with colleagues around the world. Tell us a little bit about the process of the consensus you've built around interventions that work for things like diarrhea, pneumonia, uh, early child deaths.
1: It's been a laborious um, and a grinding process but also extremely rewarding. And it's not something really that happened automatically with the start of the Millennium Goals. So some of the normative function uh, that exists around global action and interventions is rightly so with the World Health Organization. And the World Health Organization puts forward best practices and some of the interventions that need to be put in place for addressing the major causes of child mortality. But we recognized some years ago that in order to really get true ownership, buy-in, then we needed a community of practice out there which was wider than the public sector. That included academia, that included researchers, that included healthcare professionals who came from a practice background, that also included civic society in terms of awareness. So much of our work in the last 10 to 15 years around interventions that can make a difference to maternal and child survival, have been based on that principle of absolutely objective, transparent consideration of the evidence base around what works. And to do this in a manner that the evidence would be incontrovertible for some interventions, there obviously always debates around whether the impact of one thing is X or Y percent. But the direction of effect cannot be debated. So some of the interventions that we have out there that have now been taken up by governments, by, by organizations, and implemented at scale, such as childhood immunizations, have come through that consensus process. And have come through a process whereby after due consensus, due consensus uh, we have worked with policymakers and governments, and also with donors, to create the mechanism so that they can reach children who need them most. So I think, particularly around vaccines, Judy, the world has done phenomenal amount of work in the last 10 years, Uh, not only from just collation of the evidence, but creating the mechanisms so that poor countries of the world can access and have these vaccines available to the poorest of the poor. I want to give you one personal example. My son, who actually lives and works in Boston, is 32. When he was born at that time, I was working in Pakistan. And I remember, as a young physician, doing my darndest to procure Hib vaccine, which had just recently been launched, and to take it by hand from the US at considerable cost back to Pakistan because I wanted my son to have it. Um, Today, that vaccine, and even more expensive vaccines, are available to the poorest of the poor in my country at no cost.
0: Yeah, that, that's a marvelous story and you know, marvelous that's example. That's a remarkable
1: example, example of what right. global will, collaboration, right. and evidence-based policymaking can do. Indeed. I couldn't have predicted that right. in
0: 1985. That's a heartwarming story. Uh, But the other side of this is we have 36 interventions or more uh, that are effective, that uh, really save children, and yet many of them are not being picked up. What do you think are the barriers, the challenges, the things that those of us in the child health community uh, can be turning around?
1: So I'm an optimist. I think we can do this, but pragmatically we also can only do this if we address what you are calling bottlenecks and barriers. So the biggest barrier, in my opinion, is one of poverty. And not just the poverty of means and access, which is generally the kind of poverty that people recognize, but also things that relate to poverty of hope and poverty of vision in policymakers in terms of how you can break some of those taboos and uh, bypass barriers. What do I mean by this? So most people who currently don't have access to these life-saving 36 interventions in low and middle income countries typically either live in very poor rural populations where geographic access is an issue, but also live in urban slums very close to where facilities are, their barriers in terms of access can be monetary if they have to pay user fees to go and access services. They can also be principally being marginalized for reasons such as social barriers, such as gender disparities, such as ethnicity. And those things can only be overcome if policymakers and civic society recognizes that there is a human rights dimension to all of this. So amongst the remarkable examples of countries that I've just cited to you, who had huge problems with child survival and ill health just 15, 20 years ago, if you look at how they've done it, they've done it through the momentum of political will to reach those people. So whether it's the Brazils of the world and whether it's the Bangladeshis or Nepal, it's been public policy determined to reach those who are not being reached. So those barriers of poverty, lack of geographic access, gender discrimination, issues that relate to undernutrition because of either poor diets or or other factors that relate to food insecurity are extremely important to tackle Because without addressing them, your solutions would always be superficial. And then finally, we have to recognize that we don't live in a perfect world. That particularly, it is a very tough, challenging world for our children. We recognize that almost 40% of the global burden of child mortality today is in countries that are in the middle of conflict, either national or subnational. And the main victims of conflict and war and population displacement are women and children who are the most vulnerable. You just have to look at the statistics to be aware of the fact that these 36 interventions can only reach people if they have the ability to access health services in peaceful times. In the middle of conflict, ongoing war, whether it's Syria, whether it's Palestine, whether it's Afghanistan or Africa, you require innovations and solutions that at the one end could be the vision of people like Jim Grant of UNICEF, who at one stage not only initiated but actually implemented days of tranquility in the middle of war in Africa so that children and families could have access to life-saving interventions and to obviously work together towards the attainment of global peace.
0: Certainly a hero, Jim Grant with the Gobi and all the things that he did. So the, the leadership and the advocacy, terribly, terribly important. You've talked now about social determinants of child health and health equity and so forth. One of the really important ones that you're interested in is nutrition. Tell us a little bit more about nutrition and the ways that Uh, particularly our child health practitioners around the world can address nutrition?
1: So nutrition, and particularly undernutrition, underlies almost 45% of the total global burden of child mortality as we speak. And some of it is through the intergenerational aspects of undernutrition, and what do I mean by this? It's children who are malnourished even before they are born So if you can just imagine that in many parts of the world, if the mother, particularly if she's a young mother, is malnourished, has micronutrient deficiencies, then that mother is going to give birth to a malnourished child. In many countries, close to a third of all births are in babies who are underweight, small for gestational age, and therefore have huge deficits in terms of their abilities to cope with infections. And their immune deficits are not just restricted to early life. They can continue for the rest of the life, so they're handicapped in terms of their overall ability to achieve healthy growth and development. We recognize now that some of these factors are huge barriers to to improvement. Then once you go beyond the early newborn period, you begin to recognize that Clearly, in populations where food insecurity is a major challenge, that uh, you have issues around the quality of diets that babies have. And those quality, poor quality diets can be aggravators of pre-existing malnutrition and can also lead to issues like stunting and wasting. But before I go to things like food, the, the most nourishing, simplest solution for child survival breastfeeding is not an intervention that's available to almost two-thirds of all young children under six months of age in the world. Now you'd be shocked as to why that is the case because this is not something that costs money. But it does have the requirements for a social system and structure so that women can exclusively breastfeed. In societies and communities where women work if things like maternity leaves are only restricted to two to three months. For us to ask women to then exclusively breastfeed for six months means that we're asking them to pay an economic penalty, which many poor families are unable to do. So I think there is a whole host of things that need to be put in place for even improving early child nutrition around breastfeeding, leave alone complementary feeding. And then we come to the whole issue of nutrition around micronutrient deficiencies which are sometimes related to living conditions and environments, especially if you live in countries where successive generations of agricultural policies have led to depletion of zinc in the soil. Then you have diets that are poor in zinc, and you have widespread zinc deficiency, where lack of access to high-quality foods could lead to vitamin A deficiency in populations. So our ability to recognize some of those risk factors has also led to the development of interventions that have saved lives. And one of those is the Global Vitamin A Supplementation Program that was launched after the recognition that deficiency of vitamin A was associated with excess risk of mortality in children. And I think that intervention alone can be credited with saving so many lives across the world.
0: And of course, now we have some interventions with folate to perhaps uh, obviate spina bifida and important diseases like
1: that? I mean, absolutely. And and folic acid is is one nutrient which was not even recognized in the West until relatively recently. So I remember during the course of my own training in, in, in UK that the first set of evidence around the benefits of folic acid replenishment at population level and its impact on neural tube defects came out. I mean, this is within my own practice lifetime. And uh, sadly, this is still an intervention which is not available to many young women and adolescent girls at a population level in low and middle income countries. This is an example of one of the low hanging fruits that if we put our collective minds to this, we could easily put in place fortification programs that could address this at scale. I think one of the greatest innovations around nutrition Um, has been the development of these ready-to-use therapeutic foods for addressing severe childhood malnutrition. And it's certainly a remarkable advance in that it can be credited with saving lives which was previously so difficult. And this is for two reasons. Previously, when we had severely malnourished children, the only recourse that we had for their nutrition rehabilitation was to admit them to hospitals to these nutritional rehabilitation wards where they would frequently receive a range of diets, some of which were only suitable for early stages of rehabilitation, but not suitable for continued nutrition at home. And the development of these new commodities has been remarkable because it allows you to also transition their care to community settings relatively faster, even if they had complications, and in some instances to entirely manage them in community settings. So I think that's a remarkable achievement that came out of the effort around research and development of interventions for severe malnutrition. And then at the lower end of the scale is a remarkable intervention to address one of the major causes of hidden malnutrition worldwide, and that is iodine deficiency. The development and usage of iodized salt has eliminated iodine deficiency and iodine deficiency-related issues of impaired brain development, cretinism in many parts of the world. And I think those two interventions we can rightly be proud of have come out of the global community effort for evidence-based programming and implementation.
0: If we could turn to the audience now, we'd like to ask you to state your city and your country. uh, And then we'd like to ask you, uh, how many practitioners are getting involved with the kinds of things that Dr. Buddha has just talked about uh, in terms of food supplementation, whether it be zinc or iron or folate? Uh, A second question is are any of you getting involved with local production of food as part of your child health interventions? Gardens or bringing in uh, extra food supplements and things of that nature? Please let us know what practices seem to be working to enhance the nutritional level of the patients that you're taking care of. And the leadership that you're giving to help groups to come together and see these interventions. It's, it's fantastic. Tell us a little bit at the local level now about a few things you've done. I know you've done a lot on safe motherhood in Pakistan.
1: One of the things that I realized very early on in my, in my career was that it wasn't sufficient to just do global or national policy or advocacy or collate evidence synthesis that the real rubber hit the road when you wanted to translate that into implementation at a local level, and also to relate to ground realities. So take my own country as an example. 15 years ago, we were faced with a situation where almost 70% of all childbirths were in the hands of unskilled birth attendants, mostly in home settings, uh, and without access to many of the interventions that would save maternal lives. And unlike many of the interventions that we typically talk about in children, such as oral rehydration that can save diarrheal deaths, prevent diarrheal deaths, or simple oral antibiotics that can save lives of children with pneumonia, the major killers of women, particularly during childbirth, are very serious issues that typically cannot be treated at home level. They require a facility, they require a skilled attendant. So if you have a woman who has postpartum hemorrhage after childbirth, you actually require facilities for blood transfusion. If you have a woman who has obstructed labor, she typically requires a facility where she could either even have an instrumental or a cesarean section delivery. And similarly, we don't have oral antibiotic options for many of the serious infections amongst women. So these major killers were intransigent to a lot of just advocacy and community-based interventions. So we had to work very specifically on a series of steps in Pakistan. One is to work with the government to advocate for a primary care prevention program that had health workers, such as community health workers, working in rural populations, in particular, where there were no physicians or midwives or nurses at that time. And secondly, to work towards increasing and improving access to care for women who needed uh, care at critical stages of uh, their pregnancy and childbirth. In the first instance around community health workers program, there was remarkable success because we had a prime minister at that time in the mid-90s who was so impressed by the needs, unmet needs of women in our own country in Pakistan that Benazir Bhutto on our way back from the, the World Population Summit in Cairo instituted the lady health workers program to provide some primary care to poor women and children in rural populations. However, the next step of linking those community health worker programs to facility-based quality of care is work in progress. So although progress has been slow, but there has been remarkable progress with almost a doubling of rates of facility-based births in Pakistan um, from levels that I just mentioned to you a short while ago to current levels about 60% coverage. In our neighboring country, India, where they decided To the great credit to them uh, is to address a major poverty barrier in terms of access to facility cares and introduced a conditional cash transfer program to pay families a small incentive to go and deliver in facilities. They've been able to achieve now facility-based delivery rates in excess of 80%, even 90% in some states. So it just tells you that these things are not intransigent to change.
0: And those have probably had a big impact on infant mortality as well.
1: Oh, absolutely, Uh, because one of the things that has been known for a long time is that the health of the mother and the newborn are closely intertwined. Most of the maternal and newborn deaths are clustered very closely together, and about 60% of these deaths occur in the first 24 hours in and around childbirth. So that period around childbirth is where a large proportion of maternal deaths take place a huge proportion of newborn deaths take place, and also something that we haven't spoken about today, and and they're generally not on the policy radar screen, are the babies who are born dead. So the intrapartum stillbirths, when in terms of numbers are about the same as newborn deaths, all occur during the process of childbirth. So if you take all of this together, just improving access to quality care around childbirth through innovations, such as linking communities to facilities, Improving quality of care in facilities developing a cadre of workers that can provide safe birth has been game-changing in many environments I'll give you one example a favorite example of mine so you wouldn't typically associate Afghanistan With a country that has made rapid progress not with the 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 news reports that you get about the country and conflict there but Afghanistan has We've recently finished an analysis working with our colleagues in the Ministry of Health in Afghanistan and other academics, which shows remarkable change in facility-based births and skilled births in Afghanistan over the last decade, largely because the government decided to institute a cadre of community midwives in a population where there were hardly any obstetricians and hardly any skilled care providers of of other nature. And the results of that are clear to see. Maternal mortality in Afghanistan has plummeted from the highest in the world to now levels which are comparable to the many of their neighbors. And it has begun to have an impact on newborn survival as well.
0: You and uh, Dr. Frank and others have written extensively about how we need this larger community uh, of community health workers. How do you think we're doing on that uh, around the world? And I'm wondering, once you've uh, spoken, maybe we'll turn to our audience and see uh, what experience they're having. But Let's hear from you first.
1: So, you know, in my journey of learning public health and global health, there has been nothing more humbling than the experience of community health workers. So I remember as a, as a young medical student being told once uh, uh, with great indignation by one of my senior teachers that the government had decided to institute this uh, technician program that he felt would uh, uh, absolutely belittle the status of physicians and reduce the quality of care that is available to people. As I just mentioned a short while ago, the creation of a community health workers program in Pakistan by Benazir Bhutto at that time led to the development of one of the most well-recognized and effective community programs of primary care and prevention. So we've reviewed now the global evidence around community health workers, and their role is phenomenal. And it's not just restricted to countries that were forced to do this, like China with the Barefoot Doctors Program, or others that instituted these in an experimental manner. Their role in primary care prevention in advocacy, in community organization, particularly around women, is phenomenal. And they can be huge adjuncts as you scale up evidence-based interventions. Are they restricted to just poor countries and low and middle income countries? I don't think so. I think there's a place for community health workers or these outreach workers all over the world. In the United Kingdom, The domiciliary visit made by a midwife or somebody trained at even lower level was one of the most respected, wanted, and uh, parts of the experience, postnatal experience. Many of the expensive interventions that we have in the developed world are largely because we haven't utilized the power of cadres like these ancillary health workers, community health workers around social connectivity with marginalized populations. Populations and people who would otherwise not access routine health services and they don't have to it doesn't have to be an either-or they don't have to take away from traditional facility-based practice, but they can be a very useful way of linking communities to health systems to reducing transactional costs of care and Importantly creating that connectivity with populations. That is so important today. We talk about adolescents and young girls as being very difficult to reach population. Why, because most of the time we expect uh, solutions where these young people would access traditional health services passively. I believe the roles of community health workers and outreach workers around accessing some of these categories, age groups, bridging the gap between facilities and communities is critical and is probably something that even high-income countries have to look at.
0: So let's uh, turn to the audience and see what the experience is. If you would please state your city and your country, uh, and then share with us, are you working with community health workers? Are you working with technicians, non-traditional providers of care? What kind of innovative things are you doing uh, in your practices to address child health problems, by going out into the community, by using the resources that are there, we'd love to hear from you about that. And Sophie, by the way, we are studying this here in Boston uh, and trying to hook uh, community health workers into our work with kids Fabulous. with disabilities. So we're we're, more we're, power we're, to your elbow. We're, we're working on. So uh, I wanted to ask you, you've been able to bridge. Uh, different sectors. You've been able to work with bankers and with economists. You've been able to work uh, with politicians. You've been able to work with social activists. Uh, How have you done that and how how do you think we in child health should be doing that?
1: So I can't say that there is any one fixed formula for doing this. But building communities of practice and advocacy is extremely important in our work. We had to do it 15 years ago, um, uh, Judy, because we had no option. So the fact that we have worked across disciplines and with a wide range of stakeholders isn't something that came automatically. Uh, We had to do it because we had no choice at that time. Uh, When the world was reeling from Jim Grant's death and the fact that... Let me
0: just mention, because many people may not know who Jim Grant was, Jim Grant was the head Uh, of UNICEF, who promoted the GOBI, uh, which was, you want to tell us? Growth
1: monitoring, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, immunization. Um, Jim Grant was a visionary leader of UNICEF uh, for a long time. Um, He was a visionary leader not because he came up with this idea that we could reduce child mortality worldwide within our lifetime through simple interventions, but also because he walked the talk, that he went and met global leaders himself in his quest for policy. I was amongst one of the few young physicians who starting, who was starting in his career when I had an encounter with, with Jim Grant. So it was those visionary leaders that created a momentum around child survival in the 80s. In the early 90s, it became very clear uh, 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 you know, that that had begun to change global policy. And there was this massive feeling that we could address this issue. And then the momentum dropped after his, uh, after his uh, sad death. And uh, in this period, with the loss of momentum after his death in 1995, uh, it became clear that in order to make progress, you would have to create that momentum around interventions, around evidence-based policies that required a range of stakeholders to come together. And those range of stakeholders didn't necessarily mean physicians or practitioners. They meant also social activists. They meant also people who came from the world of economics. They also meant politicians, people who could lend their power and weight to some of these issues, and civic society advocates. It's creating that kind of a partnership around the implementation of some of the mission and vision of the child survival uh, revolution that I think has been successful in the last decade or two, uh, particularly in our own work on global monitoring and, uh, and uh, trend analysis, the so-called countdown to 2015 that I happen to co-chair with Mickey Chopra from UNICEF. Uh, we have recognized the value of partnerships. And we have people who do the science and some of the analytical part. But we also have people who do advocacy and policy. And we also have people who work with politicians. And we also have people who are very media savvy in terms of what they need to do to keep child health, maternal health, newborn health on the global agenda. These partnerships are critical. And as we move forward to the world beyond 2015, when we know that our millennium goals will only have been partially met, when we know that there will be competing priorities on budgets and on the political vote bank of politicians, it is extremely important to keep this coalition going.
0: That brings me to my last question, which is, uh, we have all these new ways of communicating through electronic uh, devices, through things like this world shared practices uh, forum. What do you think the role for getting ourselves together uh, through uh, the internet is?
1: Oh, I think this is a game changer. And and the very fact that we are able to do what we are doing today and potentially reach millions in the world is something that we could not have imagined a decade or two ago. So I think technology is a great enabler, just as cell phones have changed the lives of billions around the world. Uh, Similarly, the, the wide availability of broadband, of internet, of the ability of people to access relatively easily information that was not possible just a couple of decades ago is one of the greatest tributes to uh, our global uh, collective action in making sure that information is available to all. It is also a phenomenal tool for reaching practitioners across the world, whether they are in the poor parts of Africa or Asia or in the... Deserts of uh, North Africa, technology is a great enabler, but technology in itself is not enough. So technology has to not only have content with it, but it must also be followed up by action on the ground. So I think if we are able to, somehow or the other, use the power that we have of reaching people and to complement that with facilitation of local implementation and to create that global network of practitioners, Policymakers, healthcare professionals, academics, well meaning advocates across the world, I think we will reach the Millennium Development Goals, maybe not in 2015, but within the next decade.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Bhutta. It's through your leadership uh, that these groups are coming together. And we, we can't thank you enough. I want to turn for one final question to uh, our audience. Uh, again, put in your city and your country. Tell us about any coalitions, any groups that you've brought together at the local level where you're using the power of the community leaders, the politicians, the bankers. Uh, Tell us about what you're doing uh, on some of these global health uh, problems. I want to thank you all for attending, and Dr. Buddha, thank you so much. Thank you so
1: much. Greatly honored.